Sonia and I were members of a big church down in Dallas area, and we had a, a number of pastors on this church staff. And one of them, the name of the pastor was uh, Pastor Wilhite. Dr. Wilhite, he was, we, we just called him Brother Wilhite. But uh, <clears throat> he was one of my favorites because he was a teacher, and I needed the teaching, and he was a very good teacher. Uh, he couldn't preach his way out of a paper bag, but he was a great teacher. And I say that because when he would start to teach, Sonny would go to sleep, okay, just so you know. That's the kind of preacher he was. But Brother Wilhite told a story one time, and it was so indicative of what we're going to talk about today. So this is from 1984. That's how long ago it's been since I heard this story, so I may get some of the details wrong. But Wilhite had been in the ministry for 50 years when I met him. And so he pastored churches all over South and West Texas for his entire career, and now he was at this, this large church as the pastor of prayer. And he told us that back in the early days of his ministry, he had this way of doing, well, y'all remember hitchhiking? Brother Wilhite loved to pick up hitchhikers because once you got them in the car, you got them. And he would witness to them as far as they went. Some of them didn't want to go too far. But he would pick somebody up out in the middle of nowhere, and it's like, how far are you going, 45 miles? I got you for at least an hour. You know, he'd even slow down to get to finish his gospel presentation sometimes. Well, the Brother Will Hyatt had one day, he told us he picked up this man, and he'd been, you know, he was doing the thumb thing, and he picked him up, and, and this it got, man got into his car. He's kind of an Indian-looking guy. He looked like he was a Native American, as we, as we say these days. And uh, so he sits down, and, and, and Brother Will Hyatt says, going to town? Mm. Okay, how far are you going? Yeah. Turns out this is one of those no-talking Indians. Now, I know it's not just Indians that are this way, but there's some people, they don't speak a lot. You get a lot of grunts, you get a lot of nods, you get a lot of shrugs. And well, that's what this, this man sitting beside him in the car was one of those no-talkers. And so as they commenced to go down the road, it was about 40 miles to Lubbock, and, and so he began to explain to him the gospel and talk to him and try to be friendly to him. And every once in a while he'd hear a grunt. or a, he, you know, It's kind of hard to have a conversation with somebody while you're driving and all they'll do is nod their head or shake their head. So he's trying his best to talk to this no-talking Indian. And he's telling him about the gospel and telling him about Jesus and telling him about the wonders of salvation. And they just get into the outskirts of Lubbock and they're going to come around this one curve and right there there's a stop sign. And over there on the far side of the, the, the intersection there is a church. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this no-talking Indian breaks his silence. He raises a, a, an old gnarled hand and points at that church and says, Them people mean, mean mean. And that was all he said. Brother Wilhite was very glad to know that was not his church. But the, the fact was that this Indian had been to that church and he had discovered that that church had in it some religious bullies. There are such a thing in our world as religious bullies. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning from the book of Mark. If you want to go ahead and open your Bible to the gospel according to Mark, we're going to go right back to the same place we have been, Mark chapter 2, and we're going to finish out this chapter today with an, an encounter that Jesus had with some people that you just have to, how to, well, you have to realize they were religious bullies. And so when you encounter religious bullies, how do you deal with them? 
How do you deal with these religious bullies? And so in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, I want to read this aloud as you read along if you would. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 and 28, through 28. Zerbeth will have it up here on the screen for us. And so as we begin, here is Mark chapter 2, verse 23. And it came about that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, See here, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and he gave it also to those who were with him? And he was saying to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Heavenly Father, we come to you around your word this morning, and we pray that you would just take the truth of this scripture and implant it in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we see here some men from the Pharisee party, some, some people who were kind of uh, from this uh, group that had been religious uh, uh, students of a particular sect called the Pharisees. And they were keeping themselves busy watching Jesus, watching the new man on the block, watching the new ministry. They were watching and they were waiting because what they really wanted to do was start a ruckus. Now that's what religious bullies do. They want to start a ruckus because they feel like they're going to be the one that comes out on top of this ruckus. And so these watching, waiting worldlings are there And instead of, you know, I say worldlings, they were worldlings. They were people who were really outside of the true faith, but they were hiding that fact behind religious robes. They were hiding that fact behind religious talk. They were hiding that fact behind religious activity and their religious identification said, I'm a Pharisee. Really? Tell us about God. Well, you tell me about you first. They were religious bullies. And and they were probably in their own minds... They were probably genuinely sincere, but we're going to find out as we go through this this morning that though they might have been genuinely sincere, they were genuinely wrong. I mean, what was their gripe anyway? This is what was going on. The people, Jesus and his disciples, were walking through these grain fields, and they were reaching down and plucking the heads of grain. Now, you don't just take one of those and start to eat it. You have to do a little bit of work with it. I mean, you have to do a little bit of activity with it. So you pluck that head of grain, you put it in your hand, and you kind of get rid of the stems, and you get rid of the, ch- the chaff and blow a little bit off. What you're doing is getting a snack. That's all. You're just getting a handful of little grains of wheat, and you're going you're gonna to take them. That's, that's, that's different kind of trail mix, okay? But that's what it is. They're picking out grain and doing a little bit of that, and, and then they eat it. It's a snack. The fact is that such activity is specifically authorized by the law. Way back in the book of Deuteronomy, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 23, there is a, a very specific, in fact, it's kind of the same thing as if you're going along uh, by somebody's orchard and you see a ripe apple. As long as you don't take a bushel basket and start picking apples, the law would have said, that's fine. You have an apple, it's all good. In verse 20, this is Deuteronomy chapter 23, beginning in verse 24, it says this, When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied, but you shall not put them in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. And so Jesus and his disciples were on, on, on solid ground. It was just a handful. 
You see, what the law said about the Sabbath, which is what the Pharisees were all up in arms about, the law said about the Sabbath was you don't do any work, any normal work on the Sabbath. And they, these men were not harvesting grain. They were having a snack, a totally different world. It was not prohibited on the Sabbath. And, and, and I understand about that kind of religious want to because a lot of us were raised up in traditions where we love to see our traditions kept. And it's great to have a heart to keep God's requirement. That's great. It's 100% fine to want to enforce and to share and to maintain those requirements because if you will maintain God's requirements, it's always beneficial to the society. If you'll maintain God's requirements, it'll always be beneficial to the person who's maintaining those requirements. It'll always be beneficial to that family. But when you get ready to go out there and enforce it for somebody else... Be sure you are enforcing God's law and not your interpretation of the law. Be sure you're enforcing God's word and not your understanding of God's word. It's important that we get that point across. They wanted to have an argument with Jesus about the behavior of the disciples because what they were really wanting to do was find something wrong with Jesus. They wanted this whole guilt by association thing that would come because if Jesus is letting them break the law, well, then he's... He's breaking the law too. And they had a way they wanted to point him out because they were sure somehow this upstart Galilean, wow, we've caught him red-handed. There they are. They're working on the Sabbath. And if they're working on the Sabbath, Jesus is right there along with him. They framed the argument that way. And when they said, look here, or see, or the idea there in verse, and we're back in Mark now, Mark chapter uh, 2, verse 23, 24 says, see here, see here, see here. They were trying to get his attention, okay? They framed the argument that way, and that's what they wanted. They wanted an answer to their argument. So Jesus, in his wonderful way, he answered them by totally changing the subject. Don't you hate it when people do that? I mean, I want you to answer my question. And they say, well, you don't understand the situation well enough for me to answer that question yet. So let me start somewhere else. And so Jesus, in verses 25 and 26, and I want to read them again there, he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and gave it also to those who were with him. Now, when Jesus gave this answer, I have to imagine it was kind of a head-scratcher for some of those Pharisees because they had called the rookie rabbi up on the carpet and they were ready to read him the riot act but instead, Jesus, moved by compassion for the Pharisees and his disciples, Jesus moved, seeing a teachable moment for the Pharisees and his disciples, Jesus moved by his concern for truth and real mercy for the Pharisees, for the disciples, for all that would hear even today, he brings up an event in the life of David, one of their great heroes. He brings up something that they had no intention of talking about. It's over in 1 Samuel 21. We won't go there, but it tells the story there. And Jesus actually gives us a few more details than we find over in 1 Samuel. Because after all, Jesus, was, Jesus knew about what happened back in the day. But why bring up David at all? I mean, what's the point here? Why would, why would he bring that up? Their question was about working on the Sabbath, not about showbread. What's that got to do with anything? And so Jesus goes ahead and makes his point, whether they understand it or not. And that's what verse 27 and 28 are about. He was saying to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, Jesus never violated any of God's laws. We know that. He went against their traditions 
on a pretty much regular basis. Jesus went away there, or went against their traditional interpretations on many occasions, but never did he break the law, never did he sin. And, and we know even today that God's law is always good. God's law is always good when it is properly understood, when it is properly applied, and when it is properly enforced. And by the way, I've said enforced a couple of times. You can't really enforce God's law. Keeping God's word, keeping God's law has to come from within. I can punish you for not keeping God's law, but I can't make you keep it. Same thing with they say you can't legislate morality. That's a lie. Every piece of legislation that's ever been passed was somebody's morality being legislated. But that's, that's to one side. No amount of enforcement will ever enable any of us to keep the law. So enforcement is just really another word that we use. The law was always intended to be our schoolmaster, not to get us to heaven. The law was intended to be our schoolmaster to get us to Christ. The law was given to show us our need for a Savior, to show us we couldn't keep God's law. And these Pharisees that Jesus was speaking to had not yet realized that they were never going to make righteousness. They were going to never be made righteous by keeping of the law because the law, as good as it was, was limited by the people who were trying to keep it. The law was limited by the fact that people were trying to keep it. What we needed was a higher law, and a perf or we have to have a higher law or a perfect person to keep the old law. Well, here in Jesus, we had both, both the higher law and the perfect person. He was the perfect spotless son of God, the perfect spotless lamb of God who was keeping all the law and who was going to close out the old covenant like we talked about last week by becoming the perfect sacrifice for sin, paying the price for my sin and yours, settling the debt of sin, freeing us from the law of sin and death. How? By a higher law. We were all born under that curse of the law of sin and death. But Jesus came, and through the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, He is allowed or He is able to set us free. So the answer that Jesus gave to these would-be religious bullies, these people who thought they were calling Him on the carpet, it was both merciful and confrontational, which that's, that's quite a, an accomplishment, to be both merciful and confrontational at the same time. But Jesus could do it. And then not only was it merciful and confrontational, it was enlightening and tough at the same time. Look at verse 27 again where he says, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Jesus was trying to explain to them, God gave you the Sabbath as a gift. God gave you the Sabbath so that you could have a rest day. God gave you the Sabbath as a gift. He never intended the people to become servants of the Sabbath. So Jesus said, understand, one is here who is greater than the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the God-given Sabbath. Why? Because of the higher law. The higher law of who's there and the higher law of who He is. I keep saying higher law. Let me see if I can explain that. Um, everybody know about the law of gravity? Yeah, most of us have dropped something and it landed right on our toe because gravity took over. Okay, <clears throat> did you know that you can overcome gravity? You can, you can, uh, you can supersede gravity. Now, there are two or three different ways you can do that. You can be in a rocket, and it can overcome gravity by re reaching escape velocity. You can employ a couple of other laws, like the law of lift and drag, which airplanes do. And, and an airplane can lift huge amounts of weight. Have you ever seen a 747? Or how about a B-52? You can put a B-52 fully loaded with all of its fuel, all of its ordnance, all of its men, and that thing will go boogity-boogity down an airport runway, and away it'll go. 
with 120,000 pounds of ordnance and people and fuel. That thing shouldn't be able to fly, but because of the law of lift, the law of drag that go together in this thing with the acceleration, the forward motion, that aircraft will pick right up off the ground. And lift is something, you know how everybody thinks it's the, the air hitting the bottom of, a, of an airplane wing and making it go up? That's not what lift is all about. That airplane wing is so shaped that the air going over it will actually form a little pocket of low pressure right above the wing, and that lifts up into that low, that low pressure spot, and that airplane just rises. That's why the stresses on the airplane, if it was hitting the bottom of that, that thing and trying to lift it, it'd tear that thing off in no time. But because it's lift, it just goes right up. Science 101. Well, maybe 201. Did I get it right? <laughs> Moving right along. The fact is, though, you've superseded the law of gravity. If you don't believe gravity is still in effect, you just take a walk outside that airplane. And you'll find out that gravity is still completely in effect. You might describe a nice arc on your way down because of your forward motion, but you're going to go down. And by the way, as my brother likes to say, it's not the fall that kills you. It's the, it's the end of the fall. It's the landing. How do you say it? Sudden stop at the end. Yes. But that law of gravity can be superseded. Well, Jesus is trying to teach these people that moral law, God's law, they never go away, but they can be superseded by a higher law. God has a royal law of love, a royal law of grace, a royal law of mercy that can overcome the law of sin and death, and it's called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and he's trying to teach these Pharisees as he's also teaching his own men, that there is a law that's higher. There is a way to supersede even that law that said, well, we're, we're here to make sure you keep the Sabbath. Okay. Now, backing up just a little bit. What, did, what is this about David intended to explain then? What's the big deal there? These religious bullies. I mean, here they were defending God's word. You know, we've got to defend God. God's word can take care of itself, by the way. He doesn't need you to help him, but moving along. Jesus is pointing out to these Pharisees that their outrage, because they were outraged. Look at you guys breaking the Sabbath. And I'm sure they were maybe frothing at the mouth just a little bit because they were, anyway. They were very conveniently selective about their outrage. You ever meet somebody like that? If so-and-so does something wrong, well, that's no problem. We can just overlook that. But if this person does something wrong we got a stomp on him. You ever have anybody like that? That's, that's what I mean by religious bully. They saw these religious newcomers, and they were able to interpret what they were doing as Sabbath-breaking only because they were trying to find fault. I always wondered, why were they stalking Jesus? They weren't really going along with Jesus to go along with Jesus. They were going along with Jesus just watching. You know, they're 50 yards or 50 feet away, and they're kind of like this. What's he doing now? What's he doing? Oh, I got him now. That's what they were doing. They were out to get him. They were out to find fault. And one of the reasons I think they were is because nobody could get a crowd like Jesus could unless he's doing something crooked. Some of us still think that way. But they found fault. They pointed a long, crooked, accusatory finger at that law-breaking that they thought they saw. So Jesus, what he's doing is calling them on their double standard. And he, he says, <clears throat> you see a guilty party here. Would you see a guilty party here if the guilty party was one of your heroes named David? 
Because David was not a perfect man. Now, the Bible does tell us that he was a man after God's own heart, but he had a lot of days when he stumbled. He had a lot of days when he did not get the perfect religious, you know, standards kept. <clears throat> and if these religious bullies were going to be uh, honestly consistent, if they're going to be someone who is going to walk with genuine integrity, they're going to have to condemn David. And so he says, would you boys who are so quick to defend or to, 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 uh, to condemn my disciples, would you be in the crowd to stone David for desecrating the holy things? Would you be in the crowd picking up rocks when David was eating the holy bread? Would you pick up stones to put David to death for desecrating that holy table? Because God didn't condemn David. Now that doesn't mean that God said it was okay, because if you read that story back there in 1 Samuel, you'll find out David told some lies. There were some obfuscations going on. In other words, he was hiding the truth. But God didn't condemn him. God actually brought him through that time of, of wobbling faith and, and put him on the throne, and through David sent us the Messiah. So men, he's talking to the Pharisees again, when you try to selectively enforce the, the letter of the law to your convenience and satisfaction, what you're doing is you're only seeing that basic law. You're only seeing the law of gravity, if you will. You're only seeing the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law, not the purpose of the law. Because the Old Testament law talked about God's mercy. The Old Testament law talked about God's grace. The Old Testament law talked about God's love. And those laws were always higher than the, 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 the other parts of the law. Because when you start talking about mercy and grace and love and law, the letter of the law is still there. But the higher law, God's royal law of love, supersedes that and, and will supersede the bare letter of the law. So many people in our world today, are missing out on the beauty of that higher law because they're all down here nitpicking, looking to try and make sure they've got every I, tick, uh, uh, let's see, every I dotted and every T crossed. And what they're really doing in the Pharisees' day and in our day, many of them, elevating the traditions, elevating their way of doing things, elevating their ideas of the law, as if it was God's law, above God's royal law of love. Now, did Jesus do away with the law? Was he saying it's okay what David did? No, he wasn't ever trying to do that. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law, as we mentioned last week. He came to fulfill how? By a higher law. He didn't come to fulfill the law even by a law of works, but by a law of grace, by a law of mercy, love, and faith. And we see beautiful pictures of this all through the Scriptures the higher law that comes in. For instance, not just David, but do you remember Ruth? Ruth the Moabitess? Don't miss that word. Because she was from a country that according to the letter of the law, over again in, in, in Deuteronomy 23, according to that, Moabites were not allowed to be a part of Israel for at least ten generations. They were not, in fact, Zerubbath put that up there. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of the descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Why? Because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Ruth was a Moabitess. But you remember the story how, how 
Elimelech and his wife Naomi, they went down with their two boys, Malon and Chilion. They went down into the, the country of Moab because there was a famine back in Bethlehem. And they went down there and lived a few years. And Moab, uh, Malon and Chilion both took wives, Orpah and Ruth. And after a while, Elimelech died and both the boys died. And now it's just Naomi and the two girls. And Naomi hears that, hey, stuff's going good back in Bethlehem. I'm going home. Girls, you can stay here if you want to. And she headed for home, and Naomi and Orpah both went with her. And about halfway up the road, she turned around and said, Orpah, Naomi, Ruth, listen, I'm not going to have any more boys. I'm too old. I'm not going to have any more kids. You can't find, wait for somebody to get married from me. You probably ought to just go back to your mother's house and find yourself another husband. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and took off home. But you remember what Ruth said? In fact, a lot of weddings have this read at their wedding. In Ruth chapter... Um, was it chapter number 1, verses 14 through 17? But Ruth said, let's start back at 14, Zerubbabel. They lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. By the way, fun fact, Orpah was the original name of Oprah Winfrey. She didn't like the, the name Op or Orpah, so she changed it to Oprah. That's free, no extra charge. <laughs> Orpah went back. She was a kisser. She kissed off and went. But now Ruth is going to be a cleaver. Look at this. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law, this is Naomi, you has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But then Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and here it is, and your God, my God. And she goes on to say, Where you die, I'm going to die. Where you are buried, I'm going to be buried. And she says, May God himself curse me if I don't do everything I've said, if any, I let anything but death separate us. How was it that Ruth bought into, or how did she not bought into it? How did Ruth become a part of that higher law? By her choice to leave Moab behind. She left behind her Moabitess-ness. And she chose to become a part of Israel. She was included in the higher law of mercy, in the higher law, the God's royal law of love, by her faith, by receiving by faith the God that Naomi had already introduced her to. And if you look at that in verse 17 in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, she says, thus may the Lord do to me. She knew God's holy name. You see that's on the four big letters? That's the tetragrammaton. That's the things we would pronounce that as Yahweh. She said, may Yahweh himself curse me if I don't go with you and love you and have him as my God. She knew God. She had chosen God and leaving behind her old life. God's law taught love and forgiveness every bit as much as it taught punishing lawbreakers. But these Pharisees, we go back to Mark chapter 2, these Pharisees had so majored on the punishment that they were forgetting about the love and the mercy and the grace. I'll tell you another time when that was on glaring display was when Jesus was... Uh, well, in fact, you all remember the story of the woman in, uh, caught in adultery? It's over in John chapter 8. I won't go there because I, I don't, I don't want to read 16 verses. But Jesus was in, in the temple courts. He was actually there close in the temple area, and he had gathered a group of people around him, and, and they were all just having Sunday school, I guess you could tell. Maybe they're having small group time. And, and Jesus is there with his disciples, and he's teaching. And as they're teaching, a ruckus starts. Doesn't it seem like all these religious people? Bullies want to start a ruckus. And this ruckus comes from the outside of the group, and they're bringing somebody in, and there's these yelling and growling and mean talking, and they bring in this woman, and they throw her down in the midst of Jesus' disciples right there in front of the Lord. And the Pharisee, 
the scribe, one of the others, says the scribes and the Pharisees brought her. They said, Master, which I can just imagine how that dripped with sarcasm when they said Master, because they didn't think he was a master, but they said, Master, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law says that such women are to be stoned, but now, Master, what do you say? And Jesus, you know what he did? <laughs> he ignored them. He got kind of down on, he started writing on the dirt. Hmm, I don't know if he was humming or what he was doing, but he was writing in the dirt. And it so boiled the potatoes of these sanctimonious, supercilious religious bullies that they demanded his attention. Now, I don't know if they said, hey, boy! You ever say that to Jesus? They did. They wanted his attention. Who do you think you are ignoring us? Get up, quit doodling in the dirt and answer our question. Now, that's the Butler translation, y'all understand. It does not say in John chapter 8, doodling in the dirt. But that's what he was doing. He stood up. And as if to say, well, I'm sorry, I didn't realize how important you guys were. What was the question? No, none of that's, that's again, the Butler translation. But the fact is, Jesus said, well, you know, in, in, in every real way, this, the law did say that woman... Women caught in adultery were supposed to be stoned. And so Jesus said, May he who is without sin among you cast the first stone. May he among you who is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. And he, and he just knelt back down and started writing on the ground again. And the Bible says right after that that they began to go out, beginning with the older ones. They dropped their rocks and they left. Why? Because they knew that the standard that they were trying to set for the woman, they could not keep themselves. My first question would have been, where's the dude? Because the Bible does not say women caught in adultery, it says people caught in the act of adultery. But these men came and Jesus was grieved at their heartlessness. These men, who, the scribes and Pharisees, they were, they were, he was grieved at their lack of compassion for this woman. Here they were using this woman to try to do a gotcha on Jesus. And that's what these men in, John, in Mark chapter 2 are trying to do. Now, now, this woman, when Jesus, she was guilty, y'all. I mean, she was guilty of one of the big ten. We got Sabbath breaking, here's this, uh, was Jesus saying that's okay? No, what he was saying was there's a higher law. The law of forgiveness, mercy, grace. And if she would choose Jesus, which she did, Jesus said, woman, where are those thine accusers? That's the King James. Does no one condemn you? And she looked at Jesus. And with no doubt tear-stained eyes, she looks in the face of the living Lord and she says, no one. Where are your accusers? Does none condemn you? She says, no one, Lord. No one, Lord. She was guilty. These, these people there, the scribes and the Pharisees, they thought even Rabbi Jesus can't wiggle his way out of this one. I have to imagine sometimes serving God with that kind of harshness. Serving God with that kind of a hard, angry countenance. Serving God with spite, and I'm going to get you today. Boy, I can't wait to get them. Some of us have met religious bullies. And God forgive us, some of us have been religious bullies. 
It works like this. Demanding that others live up to your expectations. Demanding others live up to my interpretation. Exactly. Demanding that others live up to my timing of what God said. You've met some. It works out this way most of the time. Well, you're going to please me or it's the highway. You know, the old my way or the highway thing. You don't understand how important I am. You do it my way or you can just leave. Those people always make me chuckle. Because if I don't leave, you know what they'll do? They'll leave. My way or the highway works both ways. But that's the way they act. That's the way they work. Live up to my standards or get out. And if you don't get out, I'll leave myself. Now look, standards are great. But don't let the standards and the, 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 the foundations of your life, don't let those things become rules and regulations designed to keep the sinners out of your life. Because Jesus sent us to sinners. We don't want to have rules and regulations at our church to keep the sinners out. Now we want to keep our, our church pure. We want to keep our, our families right. But God has a way... Of, of reaching out. We can let our rules and regulations so isolate us that we become no earthly good for heaven's sake. Guess what? Jesus ate with tax collectors. Jesus ate with zealots. Jesus ate with common fishermen and Jesus ate with Pharisees. And sinners. Why? Because the same grace that was for the sinner was for the Pharisee. The same grace that was for the common fisherman was for the zealot. The same grace that was for the tax collector was for every common man that would come to Christ. Grace was for all. Grace was needed for every last one because every last one needed redemption. Every last one needed forgiveness. Every last one needed grace. Well, not me. I'm a Pharisee. You might need it more than anybody else. That's not true, because we all need it the same amount. Because what does the Bible say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus said, I have come to the sick. I have come to the, the one who knows they need a, a doctor. Jesus, the Son of Man. Jesus, the Lord of the harvest. Jesus, the Savior of the world. In many ways, he is once again passing through the grain fields of this world. I mean, what was he doing here in Mark chapter 2? It says there in verse 23, he was just passing through the grain fields. What was he doing, though? He was on his way to do God's will. He was passing through the grain fields, meeting needs. He was passing through the grain fields, teaching the good news. He was passing through those grain fields, leading men to reconciliation. And now in our day, he's doing the exact same thing. He's going through the grain fields of this world, and he still is doing God's will. Only now he's doing it through his children. He's still passing through the grain fields of this world, and he's still meeting needs, but now he's doing it through his church, that thing that Judy was talking about earlier. Just imagine what that's going to mean to somebody to get free eye care because they can't afford it or, or some kind of free medical care because they can't afford it. Through God's church, what a wonderful witness. Jesus is still passing through the grain fields of this world, teaching the good news, only now he's teaching it through his redeemed. You see, we who know the Lord are supposed to be teaching others to know the Lord. That's our job. That's our responsibility. Hey, that's our great privilege. Jesus is still passing through the grain fields of this world, and he's leading men, women, and boys and girls to be reconciled to God, and he does that through people who have already been reconciled to God by a higher law. And it's a good thing we've got a higher law because the fact is, to go to heaven, you have got to be perfect. 
You've got to be perfect to make heaven. And I'm afraid that none of us have achieved perfection. But you see, by the royal law of love, Jesus takes all of our sin, all of our imperfections, all of our failures, He took all of those to the cross and nailed them there. He took our sin and gave us His perfection. So that when we come before the Father, we're welcomed into the portals of glory. Not because of our good works, not because we made some great decision sometime, but because Jesus gave us His perfection. And by the blood of the Lamb, we enter in as a child of the living God. He took our sin, and by His royal law, we can, like Ruth, we can choose to leave behind our sinfulness. We can repent and believe the gospel. You see, friend, it's by your choice. You can be a recipient of that higher law and leave gravity behind. You can be a recipient of that royal law of love. And somebody says, no, brother, no, you don't understand I'm too bad. You just don't know what I've done. I'm so bad, God couldn't possibly love. Really? Really? Are you that bad? Are you worse than a thief? Like, well, Jacob? Are you really worse than a drunken sailor like Noah? Are you really worse than a murderer like Moses? And yet God took all those people who had genuine failures in their life, He redeemed them back to His service, and He used them in His plan, and He can do the same for you. He can do the exact same thing for you. God's love of God's law of love and forgiveness forgave and redeemed all those people. He'll do the same for you if only you repent and cry out to Jesus. Receiving him as Savior, confessing him as Lord. Hey, don't let religious bullies drag you into their argument. Live in and live out that higher law of love. Let's pray.